So we are in Esther, and today we're doing just kind of a shorter transition passage. Uh, last week we looked, or two weeks ago, we looked at Esther chapter 4 and really kind of uh, the rise of Esther, her ability, her, her transition into taking hold and living out her identity. And really we kind of just came to the very brief beginning of that, and we're going to get into that a little bit more this morning. As we know, Esther, the book of Esther, is one that was written to really kind of illustrate the providence of God to his people. The setting is that the Jewish nation is in exile and scattered abroad uh, within the Persian Empire. King Xerxes or Hazarus is uh, the king who is reigning. And it's really a dark time in their history. It's the time of questioning uh, the Jewish people wondering if God still loves them, if God still cares, if he still upholds his covenant with them, really questioning what the times were, questioning the times. I think it's good for us if we look at social media or watch the news and understand the, the current events. I think for us, a lot of times that same question comes up in the sense of, wondering what the times are, uh, wondering where and what, how far this darkness will go, realizing that we live in uncertain times, uh, but certainly evil times, unfortunately. I think if we have eyes to see that uh, we will realize, too, that it's not just evil, but there is just such great deception, uh, especially in our culture, but really worldwide. And I hope that this, this morning as we look at this section of Esther and Esther chapter 5, um, we'll be able to relate and let this Holy Spirit kind of work in our hearts to uh, give us understanding uh, of our times. And so we've taken some, some Sundays here to go over the first four chapters of Esther, looking at the rise of, of King Ahasuerus or Xerxes seeing that his empire was great, that it spanned from uh, India to Ethiopia, that it included 127 provinces, that he was a ruthless, merciless, lascivious ruler, uh, prone to anger, prone to murderous rage. Uh, and that's the setting that Esther comes into and Mordecai is also a part of. Really, for the first section, for the first third or so of the book of Esther, we see Mordecai kind of as the protagonist, but we realize as we go farther that um, Esther takes on and really is that role and therefore is, has her name on the book. Uh, but Mordecai is not an insignificant figure. He uh, adopts Esther as his own and treats her as a daughter, and he is a father, even though they are cousins by blood, she being an orphan. He raises her in such a way that he does, as we understand it, or we might infer, raises her in a way that would protect her, protect her identity, give her the best chance to succeed, and yet she's taken into the harem of King Xerxes and forced to prepare for a year for one night with the king to see if she might be the one. And all along we see that she's given favor, that uh, it ends up that Xerxes does have favor for her and makes her queen. Then we see the rise of, of Haman, and Haman being really or labeled as such as the enemy of the Jews. 
And we see this hatred toward Mordecai, this hatred toward the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Uh, that is almost inexplicable. And yet we seen through history very much the same attitude, very much the same evil propagated against the Jewish people. And so it's really of no surprise to us today. Mordecai, as we know, was given a, some sort of position in the, the court when Esther rose to become queen. From that position, he has the ability to hear and see things within the court, and he, he comes upon a plot uh, to assassinate Xerxes. And so he sends word in, uh, through Esther to save the king, and the two who were engaged in that plot were put to death. That will come back into play in the next couple chapters. So here we are at kind of a transition point. We'll reread what we covered two weeks ago, or just part of it, to set the stage. Remember that the book of Esther really is written as, as a historical narrative, as a work of literature, uh, still very much the Word of God, but to illustrate and to describe a significant point in history for the children of Israel. And so there are a lot of motifs, a lot of uh, liter literary devices that come into play, and I'll try to draw some of those out as we go. And what's interesting here I in the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, is we see kind of the height of the drama of this book, the, the, the most tense, the most intense setting. If we read it too fast, we'll miss it because while it's the height of the drama between the antagonist and the protagonist, the, the, the main characters, if you will, Esther and Haman and King Xerxes, it's not the, yet the turning point of the story. The turning point is actually relatively insignificant in terms of how you read through the literature. And I point this out because it, it, it further demonstrates that it was God who would be glorified. It was God's redemptive purpose and plan that would be made known through this story, through this course of events. That while we have a hero or heroes in Mordecai and Esther and we have very much a, a set of characters that we can look to and try to identify with. It was still God who was in control, still God who was intervening, even through insignificant events. That turning point, we're not going to get there in, in depth today, but it is the fact that the king had a sleepless night. I don't know about you, but I've got, you know, I, I, about six out of seven, you know, nights are sleepless for me. And yet God saw fit to use a sleepless night to change the course of history for his people. We see in, in chapter 6, I believe, that King Xerxes has a sleepless night. In that sleeplessness, he calls for his book of chronicles, the, the, the deeds and records of his reign. And in reading them or having them read to him, he comes upon Mordecai's courage in exposing the plot to assassinate him about five years prior. And he says, has anything done, been done for Mordecai? And, and his, his attendants say, no, 
You just forgot him, buddy. And so the next day he wakes up, King Xerxes wakes up and says, you know, we, we need to do something. I'm going to leave you kind of hanging there, but that's really where God changed the course of these events was to have a pagan king recall the heroism of a Jewish official in his court. And from there we see the tides turn. Let's jump into Esther 4, chapter 12, just to remind us of the setting. Remember, Mordecai and Esther are exchanging or having a discussion between or with a go-between, Esther being in the harem and unable to really be out in public, and so her attendants carrying messages back and forth, and Mordecai is telling her of the plot to kill all the Jews. Remember, the edict went to all 27 provinces. It, it, it covered the entire expanse of Xerxes' empire. And really, there you say, well, why didn't, why didn't the Jews just up and leave? Well, they couldn't go back to their homeland because that was under his rule as well. And, and at least in the known world at that time, there really was not much place for them to go, to flee to. So verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them, reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered to him. As we looked at a couple weeks ago, we see in this section that Mordecai acknowledges God's sovereignty, acknowledges God's promise and covenant to Israel uh, that at least a remnant will remain, that there will still be a people, that he will intervene in such a way that um, the enemy cannot completely destroy them. We see a theme of identity and and purpose here. Um, I think we'll probably draw this out over the next couple weeks, but I think sometimes in our walks we have places or times where God is calling us or or putting us into a position. So Esther was put into the position of queen, and yet for at least five years, she was just queen. Maybe all along going, God, you know, here I am, I'm I'm living a double life. I'm, I'm a Jewish girl, I'm an orphan at that, and yet here I am, the queen of the most powerful man in the world and also the probably the most evil man in the world. What the heck am I doing here? It may not be so dramatic for us, but sometimes God places us in positions, whether it's at work or at school or even at home or just different ways of positioning his people. And the purpose or the, the plan is to be revealed to us. I think at other times it's kind of the opposite where God reveals or, or, or communicates his purpose to us, and yet we wait and we are left waiting for the position to fulfill that or for the position to begin to enact or act upon that. 
I think that's illustrated by David in the sense that from a young age, he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. And yet he had to go and serve Saul, the current king of Israel, and he had to flee from Saul, the current king of Israel. And he had chances, opportunities to actually kill Saul, who had become his enemy. And yet he did not see that as his place. He did not see it as God's will to hasten the day that he would become king. And so in that abstract, we, we understand that there's very much in God's timing, right? So here Esther's been in position for five years with no purpose, and now the time has come, and Mordecai is communicating that purpose and saying, who knows, but such, but for such a time as this, you being a Jewish orphan, being made to be the queen of the most powerful ruler on earth, who now has decreed because of being manipulated by his advisors, he has decreed the, the annihilation of your people, Esther. We know that decree was very, very specific. It said to, to kill, to destroy, and to annihilate every man, woman, and child. The level to which the enemy will go to thwart the purpose of God really is boundless. And to think that we would be exempt here in America or, or as modern Christians just simply isn't the case. And that's not the point I'm going to spend much time on because I think we get that. And while we don't live in fear, I think it's, it's still healthy to be mindful of the plight of others around this world, but also be mindful of just the fact that there is an enemy there's an enemy out to steal, kill, and destroy. There's an enemy out to thwart the purpose of God for his people. That, in a way, is understanding the times. So here at the end of chapter 4, we see a role reversal with, with, with Esther, and now she's giving Mordecai direction and, and orders. And uh, two weeks ago, we kind of looked at, at that chapter, chapter 4, and we came away with a couple takeaways. Just... By virtue of review, we, we saw one that adversity births refinement. And at least in Esther's case, it had to birth it really fast. We also saw that adversity forges identity. That Esther had to step into and, and enact or, or take upon herself the identity of her people. We'll look at that in a second a little bit more. And then thirdly, the takeaway we came away, came away with was that adversity furthers understanding of God. So now in chapter 5, and we're just going to cover the first half of chapter 5 today, we, we see this further play out. We see this kind of coalesce. So chapter 5, verse 1 says, On the third day, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now this is a couple of verses just to give the setting, but it's still significant. Esther having given her word to Mordecai in, in, in parting, if I die, I die. 
She spends three days in fasting. She, she knows that Mordecai and the other Jews in Susa are also fasting, and it can be safely assumed praying. It's interesting to me that she had her attendants fast with her, likely her attendants not being Jews but being pagans, influencing the people around her and, and, and encouraging them, if not in a way forcing them to Engage in this time of preparation. For three days she prepared for one moment with the king. She knew what was at stake. She knew what was required of her obedience. And so she devoted herself to preparation. Anthropologically, historically, we know that, that this is not some trumped up drama that the writer is giving us we have historical evidence reliefs that were painted or somehow etched for us that have been found and they show a, a king a Persian king on his throne and standing behind him is a guard with an axe ready to dispatch of anyone who approached the king without having received favor Remember, Xerxes was prone to murder, was prone to murdering even his closest allies and generals and advisors. So Esther, knowing that unless she finds favor with him, could easily find that or even expect that conclusion to her life, she prepares herself for three days for just a moment before the king. When she says, I die, I die, it's not with some sense of extreme drama, but very much a, a statement born of reality. See, the king, one, for somebody to air such accusations as Esther was going to bring in public would have been to corner him. For the king, for anyone to simply approach the throne, you, you can imagine the, the, the numbers, the throngs of people who wanted just to be heard by the king. And so this rule was in place, not that it was good or bad, but, but this rule was in place to control that. Esther, as we know, had not been summoned to the king in over 30 days, very much putting into question if she was still favored by him, a guy who, who went with his gut and his whim and his every little want, and so uh, could easily engage in affairs with, with his harem and uh, otherwise dispose of the queen or ignore the queen. And so it's a situation in which there very much is very real danger, very, very real probability of failure. There are people, as we know, or is is can be safely assumed that likely would have still been loyal to the disposed, deposed queen, Vashti. And so they would have taken any chance, any opportunity to uh, do the same to Queen Esther. So Esther fasts for three days. Usually the, the, the regular time of fasting was one day. So for three days she fasts along with her servants and she has the Jews and Mordecai fast. 
She puts on her royal garments, her royal robes, assuming the, the position that had been given to her. And as we will see down the road, stepping into that identity, but merging it and in, in, in disclosing her true identity as a daughter of Israel. So she goes before the king. She stands in the inner court and she waits. You can imagine her heart beating out of her chest. Every moment seeming like eons. Waiting for the acknowledgement of a pagan king. Realizing that 15 million Jews hung in the balance in that moment. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. You can probably see the sense of release, relief wash over her face, the letting out of her deep breath as she held it, waiting for that moment of favor. All along, having received favor to get to that position, very possibly questioning how long that favor would remain. And yet, hearing those words, seeing that scepter, realizing that Truly, she had come for the kingdom for such a time as this. I think a question, if we take a half a step back and look at our own lives, this question we'll leave unanswered for now, but is how do we approach our obedience? How do we approach our call to step out in faith? How do we prepare? What I love about this picture, this transition in the book, is that... uh, Esther is mentioned in the book about 37 times, 14 of which she's mentioned as Queen Esther. Now, this isn't something to just take and run with, but it's just an interesting note that up until this section of Scripture, she'd only been referred to as Queen Esther once. And the other 13 times that she'll be called Queen Esther comes after this moment, this stepping out in faith, if you will, this and acting of her true identity and taking her place that God had given her, now having married it with that purpose that we talked about for such a time as this. Before, I think, as the author would would subtly hint to us by just referring to Esther, even though queen, just as Esther, still that orphan girl, still that girl struggling with her identity, still that girl who was named Hadassah but is known by her Persian name, living in two worlds, living with two identities, trying to make sense of it all. And now in stepping into the purpose with which she was placed in that kingdom, the author now recognizing her for who she is is in every sense, in every way. Queen Esther, queen of Persia, queen of the greatest empire on earth, queen 
to the most powerful man in the world. Queen for such a time as this. That question, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even up to half of my kingdom. That uh, would have been understood not in a literal sense, but in a figurative way that you you have you have my favor, Esther. Ask and I will give out my generosity. Ask and I will give out of my influence and, and my greatness. Verse 4, and Esther said, if, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now it's easy to read through and read over these many intrigues, these, these little steps in, in the plan, but if we think and, and take a step back and realize the book of Esther, and, and again, that it's very much written with a literary sense, and we remember that the opening of chapter 1 paints this picture of great feasting thrown by King Xerxes in, in the introduction, if you will, of himself to his kingdom. So he throws a, a I think it's a six-month-long feast, basically for all the world to know who he is and all, all of the, the, the important people, all the great generals, all the noblemen to come and see him in his greatness. And then he throws a second feast directly after that, after that to his uh, nearby realm, the, the people of Susa. So two feasts. We see at the end of Esther that two feasts are also given. And here in the middle we know that two feasts are given. So Esther invites King Xerxes, invites Haman to come and feast with her. Now this had to have been a relief for King Xerxes. Maybe she wanted his greatest stallion. Maybe she wanted some uh, portion of land or some portion of the tax. And, and instead, she simply wants to spend time with her, with him, and feast, which is one of his favorite things to do, and drink, which is also one of his favorite things to do. So he says, bring Haman quickly. Let's go. Haman must have also felt important. Remember Haman being the, the, the enemy of the Jews. Haman not knowing Esther's true identity. Can you imagine, regardless of your political stance or your evaluation of his administration, but can you imagine being invited to, well, we'll say the president, and you can choose which one in history you'd want. Can you imagine being invited to sit at the table in the White House with just the president and the first lady, just you and them? What an honor. What a, what a, a sense of, of purpose or, or a, a gravity to that invitation. Haman must have felt similarly where Man, I've made it. Not only am I the second in command, but now I've, I've got the favor, not just the king, but the queen. And, and they want to talk matters, talk shop with me or in front of me. They want to let me into their innermost circle. We won't see it today, but we, we, we see God's hand, that thread of providence, even in a benign feast like this propping up Haman, propping up his pride, propping up his arrogance and his 
his elevated sense of self in such a way that would further God's purpose. Verse 6, and they were drinking wine. After the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Verse 7, and Esther answered, my wish, my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Two feasts. A delay here. Why? We don't know Esther's motives exactly, but we see the purpose of God perfectly enacted in this plan. That's as far as we'll read today, but we know and we'll see in the next couple weeks that that second feast, again, allowed Haman to basically set up his own demise. It allowed the king time to have a sleepless night for Mordecai to be remembered and honored by the king as a Jew. For God's will to instill favor in even the pagan king in such a way that Esther's request would be granted to save her people. One night, one extra day, another meal. And yeah, it was perfectly within the will and plan of God. Fifteen million Jews spread over 127 provinces with the standing order that they would be put to death in about 10 or 11 months. Can you imagine that? Being on either side of that, being Queen or, or Queen Esther, or just being Joe Jew. That's not bad to say. Joe Smith. And what turned that in Esther's life was stepping into a role. What turned the fate, not the fate, but the, the providence for the people of God was a sleepless night in between two feasts, in between two royal dinners. I think we are often quick to be awed by by the handwriting on the wall, by the the burning bush, by the cloud by day and the fire by night, these big, awesome, miraculous, outward, obvious signs of God moving. And yet I think our identity in him, our obedience to his will, our character is forged in those moments of waiting, in those, those moments of seeming insignificance, not knowing exactly what God was doing. 
but knowing that you are being obedient to his will, knowing that you're being obedient to the plan that he gave you. And for each of us, it looks differently. For each of us, it, it, it it's, just, it's just not worth comparing except to be able to say that, Lord, I've been obedient. Or, Lord, I want to be obedient. This calls to my mind the, the preparation that Esther enacted to get to this point, to, to be in that moment. Uh, a scripture that she would have known, or at least likely would have. Second Chronicles 7, verse 14 through 16. I don't, ha- I don't have it up there. I apologize. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place, that being the temple. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that the temple, that my name may be there forever. My eyes, my heart will be there for all time. This came out of Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple once he had completed the project. We know from the New Testament and from Paul and others' writings that we are the temple. Remember the question in the Jewish hearts in the time of Esther was, God, have you forsaken us? Do you still care? Is your covenant still real? Often in our walk, and especially in our world today, maybe not here in this place, but definitely Christians across the world, suffering undescribable persecution and torture yet remaining confident and steadfast in the providence and the purpose of God to which they are called because of this thread of providence throughout history and throughout his word, this promise of God to hear. As we look at current events, as we question what's going on in our world and wonder what's going to happen next, being uncertain as to where or how to stand even. I was just spending time with a a gentleman who is a believer, and he, he, you know, 10, 15 years ago, he saw really the the crisis of of the day, of our day, was AIDS. And so he, he got on a board, he gave money, he started working towards an end to AIDS, and now he sees that as being not solved, but contained and now he sees the rise of of ISIS and terrorism as the new problem that we face in this world and not just terrorism but really the the persecution and and the extinguishment of the church. Some people say that in Syria, Lebanon and and Iran I believe where, where ISIS is operating that within two years there may not be a single Christian left in those places the systematic rooting out and destroying and, and murder of believers. Now, that's just that face value. That's not to say that out of that persecution and martyrdom that God won't send revival their way because we, we've seen that. And I don't mean to leave us on a down note, but that's where we live. That's what we live in. 
may not have touched us here, but it is touching our brothers and sisters across the world. I would propose this, that we might not know or we might not sense that God is calling us to jump on a plane on a one-way ticket and go to Syria or join the United Nations and become a military person or whatever that looks like. But I would propose that at our minimum, our least, our, our minimum response, our minimum call is to at least join in prayer for our fellow believers. To intercede on their behalf to remember them and not let them be forgotten. We live in a time where these things are moving faster and faster and faster. We live in a time, though, where at least culturally where we are in America Purpose and identity and position is a foreign thing to people who call themselves by the name of Christ. May we have ears to hear God's purpose and call for our life. May we have eyes to see the position he has placed us in or will place us in. And maybe there will be intervening even years or decades of waiting. But that does not lessen the absolute necessity of our obedience in that waiting. And the preparation for that time. For such a time as this. Esther, an orphan girl confused, being called by two names, living in two worlds, two heritages, being born into captivity, being born with no physical connection to her homeland, her promised land, her God-given inheritance, being stolen, kidnapped from her home, placed in the harem of a pagan murderous ruler, forced to spend a night with him and then become queen to him. Really an enemy of her people all along. Witnessing the rise of a man entitled the enemy of the Jews. To see him come to power and be second in command over all the empire. To realize that she had been brought to that place in that moment for a single appearance before the king that would usher in deliverance. Not just deliverance, though, but a reversal. You see, if we fast forward to the end, it's not just that God saves his people. But within that Persian empire, Mordecai and Esther become great. The fortune of the Jews is reversed and they are benefited and they gain wealth and they gain stature in that pagan empire see it wasn't just enough for God to deliver them but 
his answer to their cry, his answer to God, are you still there? His answer to their repentance and their humiliation and humbling before him, their time of fasting and prayer, their time of intercession for their people, their time of coming together and uniting within that distress, but uniting still to appeal to their God, their maker, their covenant holder. His answer wasn't just, yes, I will deliver you, but yes. Your time has come, and I will reverse what the enemy has done in your people and in your land. That's our God. We live in a new covenant and a new time, but that is still the purpose, the plan, the heart, the mode of operation of the God we serve. And while I say we live in evil and uncertain times where deception runs rampant, I I personally, I know some of you disagree, but I personally, Personally, I don't think we're nearly as close to the end as many of us think. I'm confident that there's still much revival to be had, much harvest to be brought in. And we can't afford to miss it. We, out of our devotion and love to God, need and want to be a part of that. Right? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I pray that you would communicate where man has failed. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, see you at work in this book of Esther and your word. Lord, that it would translate to our lives no matter where we are at, no matter what you are doing or what you've been doing and what you're calling us to. Father, if there's a place, a a step you're calling to have us take in faith, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to prepare for that step. Help us to do so boldly. Lord, if we've been placed in a position and we have been left wondering and questioning why we're there, I, I ask that you would begin to reveal that purpose and plan to our hearts. Lord, if there's a call that is laid dormant or a promise that has yet to be fulfilled, and like David, we're, we're wondering when, help us to be patient in that, but to persevere and to be obedient in the little things. Lord, help us to pray, to intercede for our generation, intercede for our land, intercede for our brothers and sisters. To not take that responsibility lightly, but to give it everything we've got. Jesus, you are on the throne in our hearts. And we say yes and thank you. Let's go ahead and stand as we get ready for communion.